0: Okay. All right. Uh, Hello, everyone. This is uh, Rohit Chopra here. And we are back with another uh, episode of the India Explained Conversations series on the podcast been a little longer than, uh, you know, I'd hoped. But in a way, it's turned out actually to be uh, to be a good thing, as we'll see just in a second. I'm very, very pleased to have Apar Gupta here. Um, And I've known Apar for a while, we met several years ago, we used to be in touch in social media, and he's the director of the Internet Freedom Foundation. Yes. Uh, yeah. Sorry. I just wanted to make sure I got it got it right. Um, and and you know I what I'll do is I'll just let Apar speak for himself uh, uh, because he has a you know long list of accomplishments and he does a lot of really important work uh, and I know he's litigated some really you know important cases as well uh, and been part of some very uh, crucial initiatives. So Apar, over to you. Why don't you just share a little bit about Uh, what you do, uh, what you've done, what you do in your present capacity, and we'll, we'll then take it
1: from there. So I'm the executive director at the Internet Freedom Foundation, and it's somewhat similar to... The Electronic Frontier Foundation. That's easy for me to now explain. So um, we are an advocacy group on digital rights and uh, our main focus is towards ensuring that the Indian constitution which gives a lot of um, governance frameworks and also gives fundamental rights to every individual ordinary Indian, it's still respected as we step towards the digital age which reorders all these power relationships. So the form of my work has been either strategic litigation which is approaching courts on issues such as internet shutdowns or even the fundamental right to privacy it's been in terms of legislative engagement in which i talk to members of parliament or sometimes there are public consultations organized by the government itself so like the ftc does for instance and then the public gives a response right so in india also the central right. government makes a policy it does that and we participate in public consultations and the third and the most important part of my work which comes a little um, it's a bit more novel to me is um, a public constituency building, public organizing in that sense. And we use digital tools. We put out explainers, for instance, when WhatsApp, a instant messaging platform in India, which is very popular, changed its privacy policy. We make info, we made an infographic to explain people what it means. And these kind of graphics go um, very, very um, are very, very popular. People understand how privacy tangibly impacting them on a day to day basis. So that's. That's a broad area of my work. I'm supported by our 12 colleagues. And this organization is funded by Indian funds, uh, which people donate online or some organizations also donate to us.
0: That's wonderful. That's wonderful. I mean, I could, we could just spend this entire episode talking about all the things you do. And, you know, when you think about things that matter in the sort of digital space, all the issues that are at stake have been at stake in India whether it's, you know, abuse of authority, whether it's sort of trolling, whether it's violations of privacy, Uh, journalistic work serves one purpose. And then, you know, you get sort of public sentiment, which sometimes blows over into excessive outrage, sometimes is justified, that serves another purpose. But it really does seem to me that what you do is really fundamental and essential because it's at that level of litigation at getting into the nitty gritties, that level of granularity, getting into those weeds. That's the place where, you know, these issues are decided. And, uh, you know, that's a terrain that you actually don't see as much about it, even in Indian media coverage as you should, for instance, right. And for, uh, you know, we, we get to this a little later, but for instance, to me, uh, you know, the whole sort of um, uh, uh, the, the controversy that happened involving the wire sort of recently, uh, yes. to, you know, one of the things that, and, you know, the, the, controversy is what it is, but one of the things that I sort of seem to be missing in the, in the coverage that was, was uh, undertaken internationally and nationally was precisely like you know what were the legal issues at stake right what were the constitution so bringing the constitution into it and 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 you know explaining how that sort of plays out is is essential now uh, we'll weave this into our conversation i know that when we had a preliminary chat about what we were going to talk about you were keen on talking about digital authoritarianism and yes, i think yes, that's yes. i think that's absolutely essential it's very topical and you know in some in some strange kind of way, what we are seeing with Elon Musk to me complicates. That's a, that's not state authoritarianism, but certainly there seems to be some sentiment that that is a form of you know corporate private owned sort of big tech capital, whatever you want to call it, authoritarianism. So let me let me ask, let me frame just one question and turn it over to you. I'll put one one issue out, which is that. We are also at a moment historically where we see the rise or resurgence of authoritarianism in general in the world. There have been a couple of like interesting pieces written on it, I think, in some of the foreign policy magazines. But we see that in the last, I want to say, 10, 12 years, generally, we've seen a shift towards the right. You've seen figures like Trump. We've seen, you know, Narendra Modi in India, uh, Erdogan, Viktor Orban, Putin, right? Bolsonaro, who's, you know, now, of course, lost the elections. So we we seem to be perhaps in a kind of rightward shift. And then we also have very much witnessed this rise of digital authoritarianism. So if you could just talk to a, you know, what is it you mean by digital authoritarianism? What is really fundamentally at stake here? And and then if you could, in your reflections, connect that to this larger political trend of digital authoritarianism, that would be very interesting.
1: So I think uh, digital authoritarianism has been something which has not been only uniquely present in India, it's present in several countries. And that's something which is coming out from your remarks. And it's actually the theme of the Freedom House report on freedom of the net for the year itself, which is essentially showing that this common trend is emerging in several countries. In fact, recently uh, when i was having a conversation with some people from the national endowment at democracy they were saying there are some common trends which are underlining why authoritarianism is growing the first is the growth of uh, political uh, centralization of power the second is uh, growth in the economic concentration and wealth inequality which sometimes manifests through kleptocratic regimes which gives the sense of market power itself uh, to that state uh, uh, autocrat, and uh, it's digitization. There there are some other elements of this uh, matrix as well, but what I'd like to say is that digitization is as important as money because technology, in a sense, is not only about um, what kind of content we get to consume. It is also a fundamental way of reordering human relationships, If we think and step back for a second, most of our relationships today, professional and personal, are mediated through a smartphone. The state determines how we get and avail certain services, what our identity is, what is our experience uh, 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 itself and our existence. And in many ways, we check our bank accounts, we conduct our business, we talk to our friends, we are in touch with our families, or we engage in the broader political spectrum by the use of social media. So I think that what digital authoritarianism is, is essentially... A narrowing down of the diversity of discourse quite often which is necessary in a democracy and hardening of uh, power centralization which happens at the same point in time which is driven towards people. Either it may be through a platform as we are seeing much more recently Rohit through what Musk says happens on Twitter rather than a much more considered view of what's best for users in that sense who may hold a different point of view. Or it may be also in the way, for instance, how ID systems are imposed on people and these ID systems have privacy and surveillance risks. Thereby, they are able to track a person's movements, their availability of services, etc. And by itself, that kind of knowledge that leads to a kind of behavioral modification that we are under watch. I think what makes India more peculiar than Europe, or the United States, and this is an important point to consider, is that, out of many, is that our rule of law framework, our institutional structure is not that great. We still are a a, a democracy which which can be described as fairly young, right? And also its democratic roots are still taking and still still branching out in that sense. It's not really rooted in that sense, I would say. So uh, I would say that for me, digital authoritarianism and the way I've seen it manifest over a much more recent time has been um, not only through uh, what political ideology has been able to advance, that it's been center right or even uh, a certain kind of religious right, uh, which is a uh, Hindu right. It's it's been a uh, it's it's been several factors which have led to a decrease in individual liberty and social welfare. So it's the manifestation is much more clear. Uh, digitization has been promised to us as something which makes our lives better, but I think it makes our lives better in a much more transactional sense rather than in the deeper sense of us being citizens in an informed democracy. And I think that's what it does. Okay.
0: Well, wonderful. I mean, I you anticipated a question I was going to ask, which is about. How does this play out in the Indian context specifically? And we'll come back to that a little bit. There's two other questions I have, and I'll, I'll ask them one by one. Actually, so the first is you mentioned, you know, the whole question of really the you know the freedom of the net, right? Um yeah. And and this is you know we are also at a moment where we hear a lot of there is a lot of conversation about how the freedom of the press in general has been compromised, in part because of the internet uh, itself journalism is in crisis. Uh, you know there's a fascinating article in The New York Times which actually says that Silicon Valley uh, some of these you know big tech figures, these cult figures they they actually want to kind of end journalism. They don't like the kind of investigative function that journalism serves, etc, whatever. But if we go beyond just that too, and if we look at the the question of you know how uh, the the internet how what is happening in the realm of the internet in somehow somehow diminishes our freedoms, and uh there's there's also a simultaneous conversation happening about how the collapse of journalism as we know it or the implosion of journalism and uh the uh, you know the undermining uh, uh attrition of of the power of certain institutions the weakening of civil society has taken away that same freedom so yes. sometimes what happens is you know the the this this specific loss of freedom with regard to the internet is collapsed into that larger argument about a wider loss of freedom. So what I'm interested in hearing about from you as an expert is what is unique and specific to the loss of freedom in the digital realm, right? You already kind of hinted at it and to some extent even elaborated on it about the the sort of deeper democratic norms. But if you could just say a little more about it, that would be great.
1: So I think the way I'll... The way I'll conceptualize is that, um, for instance, there's a very famous, famous quote that um, "software will eat the world" or "digitization is flat." And, right, right,
0: right. Mark Anderson. And, and
1: yeah, yeah, all of and so, all of so, that. Yeah. So it's 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 all, It's not only a political theology. I think it it is an accurate description of a fundamental framework of uh, of society. Uh, and uh, since since for possibly since since modern finance in that sense, right? right because right. what you see today is that today people not only have uh, a wallet, but they also have a okay. smartphone and it's basically attached to every person. Uh, okay. with what you see today in India, for instance, over the past 10 years is that in certain cities like the capital city of Delhi or the commercial city of Bombay, there happen to be more internet connections than people. In fact, in right. Delhi, uh, there are about Two and a half internet connections for every person, as per the r- last recorded census. Right now, what does it do to individual freedom? In a way, is that it fundamentally alters this? And this right, is right. the first. This is the first part of what I sense as an expert has happened. It's yeah. been this categorical fundamental shift. Now, normatively, uh, what is its value in that sense? How do you how do you gauge it? How do you assess it? Also becomes important. And I think here, what's what is important for us to consider is that digitization is, is, is a form of power. It is a form of power which is quite often initially been described as a democratizing form of power because it gives the ability uh, through a medium for two-way interaction, which is not there possibly scalable and at this cost with traditional radio transmissions which are happening. For right. instance... The last uh, commercial technology through which uh, people were receiving information um, was the television. And at best, you could change the channel, but you couldn't broadcast by yourself. Okay. And I think this by itself gave a underlying impression to a lot of people that this is democratic. I can be a big broadcaster by itself and I can, in a sense, uh, be able to um, you know, um, equalize and get my message out rather than through large corporations or through the state. And that's not happened. And that's not happened because I would say that the technology has molded itself to pre-existing structures of power, which are large corporations and powerful politicians as opposed to the individual by itself. So when you think about this, let's think about how it impacts our rights. And I would say that the Supreme Court in August... Of 2017 laid down the fundamental right to privacy judgment, and it said, and it said that privacy is a foundational right for, uh, for, for, uh, for, uh, for uh, it's a modern foundational right which links to each fundamental right in a sense. And they said it has various components. For instance, informational privacy is one such component, and informational privacy will impact, for instance, uh, much more traditional aspects of, phone, of of phone interception surveillance, but it will also impact a person's decision making the supreme court actually noted what happens if a person's facebook post as much as people may not use facebook so much but it may apply to any other social media but what happens to a person's facebook post if that post is taken and broadcast to a larger medium will they still say it right so in a sense a person is not truly in control they don't have that decisional autonomy and i say the that, that, that's that been a much more modern realization that they are large, complex technical systems, which are com- sometimes um, uh, hinged on underlying frameworks of power or profit, in a sense, and they are not in favor of an individual, their liberty, but to essentially uh, keep them... Uh, using that platform a longer period of time in order to serve them contextual ads, thereby make more money, or uh, in a sense, uh, be be made available within a country if it's a large foreign social media company um, uh, and uh, it has to abide by certain rules and those rules may be increased data collection or there may be informal unwritten rules for instance of censorship and broadcasting and platforming certain kinds of hate speech without any sense of content moderation. So when you think about those tangible manifestations you can understand why digitization is so important. And it's so important in a place like India, which does not have the best rule of law framework, as I was saying earlier. It's
0: wonderful. Well, so so yeah. I mean, many many different thoughts, and you know, I, just to respond before I get to another specific question, um, it it reminds me of one of the debates about privacy, and I know that Shiva Veerathanathan, professor at. Virginia, uh, you know, wonderful, several wonderful books, one of which is the Googleization of the world. It's 2012 or so and why we should worry about it. He's got an interesting point where he talks about how I think it was, you know, some executive Sheryl Sandberg was at Yahoo then probably. um, And even maybe Mark Zuckerberg, when they were asked about privacy, they said privacy is a thing of the past or, you know, you give certain amount of privacy away. In return for a uh, you know more benefits and and he says that that's a complete kind of misunderstanding of privacy right and the larger point of course is that what privacy entails is a kind of right to a representation of your life and self uh, you know as it travels kind of through the world and and now that we are we have these new technologies that form of travel that form of your life and its representation and who you are it moves in ways that the law could not anticipate. Uh, So there's a couple of things I want to, you know, push out here. One is that I was struck by the irony that the, you know, even as you actually have an undermining of individual autonomy, so much of the rhetoric that comes, in fact, from some of these figures who are, you know, venture capitalists who themselves are, you know, like Rara, Elon Musk, Mark Anderson, or the Mark Zuckerbergs of the world, or, you know, generally this Silicon Valley kind of utopian libertarian culture. It defends the right of corporate power in the digital realm in the name of individual freedom. It insists yes. that the state is the villain. It villainizes the state, right? But it yes. just you know the the like Musk's fanboys are like this is giving the power back to people again. And Musk himself is echoing this narrative that shall I restore the journalists from the New York Times who I suspended? Should so, today's poll is should someone else be the CEO? And it's all done in the name of the people, but. The irony, of course, is that it's undermining individual authority. Uh, now, that leads me to, you know, one of the fact that one of the claims in the early years of the internet, that this would be a technology that would be individually empowering, right? Uh, that yes. was sold at, And, you know, it was, I mean, the sort of coin of the realm, everyone assumed that it had, it had the, has the potential. But what's wound up happening is it's become a form of what Foucault might call, might have called governmentality, a new kind of form of sort of surveillance of data collecting, of gathering, ordering, classification, and a new form of power, whether, uh, you know, exercised by the state or by kind of, uh, uh, you know, or or, or by corporations, right? So if you could speak a little more about this paradox of centralization, uh, as I might call it, in the name of a technology that constantly it's the rhetoric of its promotion, the ideology around it is that of individual empowerment, because it seems to me that that constant production of that narrative of individual empowerment, actually, in some ways, obscures this deeply, deeply uh, powerful and in some ways, dangerous centralizing function. And it's an anti-democratic potential, right? So if you could speak to that both generally, but also in the Indian context, that, that would be lovely.
1: The first thing I'd like to just uh, bring up, since you brought up mask and it seems to be in the news cycle, something I've tried to escape from again and again, Rohit, because I think it's, uh, it's attracting a large amount of public attention, and public intention is a fungible resource in my sense, in, in many senses. Okay, so it I think he's exhausting it in a sense for a platform which itself has does not have a large number of users but has a very powerful set of users. Okay. Is that Musk in his legal filing against Twitter when um, he was rescinded, uh, he was not falling through on his offer to take over, actually has certain comments on India and describes India as the third largest market for Twitter. He yeah. states very openly that... The Twitter's uh, case in the High Court of Karnataka against the Indian government, in which the Indian government's regulations, in which it sends broad, ambiguous, vague blocking orders to Twitter to take down accounts, for instance, associated with the farmer protests, is wrong. Twitter should not have done that. Mm. The argument by Twitter in court is not that the government does not have power. The argument by Twitter in court is that the law as it stands does two things. One, it allows The government to make these broad, unsubstantiated claims for content takedowns and blocking accounts on Twitter. And the second thing, it's done without any transparency. These are secret orders. It's never revealed to the end individual that their account is being blocked in terms of the legal order itself being shared. It's just that Twitter sends an email that we received this legal request. It can't share the legal request itself. And thereby the user does not have the freedom of... uh, judicial remedy so i would just put that as a question to a lot of people that if elon musk in a signed legal filing is saying that twitter as a corporation which stands up for free speech and free expression uh, should not go to court and challenge uh, government blocking orders when its users itself don't have the right to do that there's something wrong the second thing is his own interaction on twitter much more recently has oh. been with certain right-wing accounts, not only from the United States, but even from India. Oh. And I'm not going to point to that specific interaction because that would in fact put me in threat Rohit. And I can say it very openly, threat in the sense that they can run a misinformation campaign about me, dig oh. into some parts of um, this interview, take out a sentence which is not properly framed and essentially talks me. Do certain kind of things. Yeah. That's the sense of threat which exists in India, and that's the sa- sense of threat he encourages by engaging with such accounts in India. Now, coming back to your much more uh, foundational question, what's happened? I think so has been that data, and especially personal data, which identifies individuals, both for state actors as well as for corporate actors, has become a very valuable resource. It's um, uh, it's 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 said. Um, actually has received um, um, uh, evident, uh, self-evident truth, that um, data is the new oil. And what they mean by the new oil is that it determines geopolitics, it determines uh, citizen-state interaction, and it's a form of currency, it's a form of power. And uh, more, more personal data is more oil, which means that we have to generate more data, we have to store more data, we have to gather more data by itself. And this leads to a... Inversion, uh, not an inversion, because I think the imbalance already exists between an individual and a large entity which has either a large amount, uh, a lot of money or a lot of uh, uh, resources and authority to exercise power. So if you just think about it, for instance, uh, this can be called something like data maximization. And Mm -hmm. what's happened is that in India, uh, the Digital India program relies on a lot of things, improving teleconnectivity, that definitely is a positive. Also digitization of services, that also is a positive. But when Mm -hmm. we think about it, The digitization which is being done in India is being done without any legal framework. At best, they are policy instruments which are made. And if you look at the policy instruments quite often, they only have a notional reference to privacy which remains unenforceable. So Mm -hmm. what are the kind of digital projects being built in India? For Mm -hmm. farmers, there is the agri-stack in which each part of a farm input and a farm output will be captured through data. For unorganized laborers, there is an eShram portal for them to receive their welfare benefits. Mm-hmm. In healthcare, there was Arogya Seto, contact tracing app, which did not work and gathered immense amounts of data. Right. And the Ayushman Bharat digital health mission with digital IDs, which will facilitate what the state argues will be a ceaseless Common ledger, which can be shared with private hospitals, as well as private insurers. Notice that the state is creating a database, but the service providers will be the private players. Right. For school children and teachers, there's something called as National Digital Education Archite- Architecture, NDR. And these digital databases are without an anchoring legislation, but have developed frameworks with what are called, as I was saying, policy documents. And mm. they advocate for greater data processing, greater storage of data for satisfying public and private purposes. And here's the kicker. Like the United States, we also don't have a federal data protection law. But mm. the state is building all these databases. It's building it in a weak rule of law framework. And it's getting to know more and more about a person. Now, what? why does this become really troubling? It becomes troubling because then you have certain layers and architectures on top of it for data sharing. So the data which is there for school children or in the agri stack, so suppose that there's a that there's a family um, which is engaged in rural farming in India. It's first in a government database for farming. Then the school children in that family are in a database. Then the healthcare benefits are in a database. And then if somebody in that family also engages in unorganized labor, they are in a database. There are many more. And on top of that, what's happening is that What you have is called the Data Empowerment and Protection Architecture, or DEPA, that says that we need to break data silos, which means that you need to unify these databases to unlock their value. And this is there in the National Economic Survey. This is there everywhere. What is in effect happening, and I'll step back right now and I'll pause after saying this, is that this is nothing but the creation of a 360 degree profile of every Indian across all the activities, even the ones for which there were no no data was being collected earlier, to a very very granular level through citizen-state interactions and through digital systems. This is what is called as 360 degree surveillance.
0: Yeah, it reminds me of you know a couple of things. Uh, Julie Angwin and you were on a panel with her. Uh, at Santa Clara University, where I teach recently like what she calls dragnet Nation, right? The sort of discriminatory yes. data and the the all kind all the kinds of ways in which you know, you sort of have a hall of mirrors effect. And you have the public sector and the private you know the state and the private sector sort of enmeshed in all kinds of ways, collecting, chopping, selling data, combining it. And then you know two thousand and twelve or so, I think, Friend of mine, Aaron Beatty, wrote a fantastic piece for the MIT Technology uh, um, Review about about privacy, and he spoke about a similar kind of like comprehensive architecture that emerged in the U.S. in the wake of uh, 9/11, the post-9/11 security state, and what it allowed essentially law enforcement at every level to do was uh, you had these sort of, you know, you could you could you didn't really have the data stored at any point, but what you could do is you could, un- under certain circumstances, gather data from local, state, and federal authorities, right? And you could combine it. And then the private sector also got involved in it. And the private sector, which, you know, whether it was, I think, private sector organizations, which had government contracts were able to use it. But, you know, if it was if it was nominally done in the name of national security, they also wound up kind of monetizing it. Um, so, so let me...
1: Yeah. Right here's the, here's, here's the really, really, really fun part. The government has tried to sell this data to the private sector. So there's also an argument happening in India and it has sold it already in some right. things. Yeah. So for instance, the DMV database in India has been sold. Wow. They yeah. actually made money out of it. And then they discovered that that database could be used to identify people's houses as per their religion. And that could contribute... In a communal uh, riot, in terms of targeting of certain minorities, uh, by itself, as per a vehicle parked below their house. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This, this actually happened. It's
0: frightening, and this is exactly the question I was going to ask next. Because you know, I was I was on a panel, and this is not about me, so not plugging myself. But I was on a panel on um, the thirtieth, um, uh, the legacies of the Babri Masjid demolition, and the riots. You know, thirty years after the yes. the mosque was demolished, and I remember one of the things, like I remember very vividly, I was a student in in um, in Bombay, sorry, at that point of time, um, and I do remember that you know uh, at that time very vividly the the you know the army sort of coming in and uh, army trucks kind of doing a, a round of where I was and in our building they took down they took down the nameplates right they took down the nameplates of all the residents because the worry was that a mob would come and it would demand that the security guards of the building or the residents of the building hand over Muslim residents, right? So so this is, this is, you know, pre, pre sort of, you know, explosion of the World Wide Web. So this is exactly what actually gets me to my next question, which is that you already, we already have a sort of culture of authoritarianism that, you know, the, the idea that these WhatsApp groups, which spread rumors, right, communal riots, we know that WhatsApp has been in, implicated in them in, in other countries, but in India also. And in India, you know, there's some evidence to show that the BJP, I think I'm, I may be wrong, but someone did mention to me that Amit Shah at some point made a remark about, we have lakhs and lakhs of WhatsApp groups, right, and they do A-B testing. And the structure of the Hindu right is such in India, or that, you know, there is this wide kind of network, which is which gives the government plausible deniability, as I say, that they will say that this is a local riot and so on. But when you look at, you know, the way the BJP IT cell functions, when you look at the fact that there are talking points, when you look at the fact that, you know, there's an orchestrated campaign against, say, Shah Rukh Khan right now for Pathan and Deepika Padukone, we know there's some connection. So, so to me, I, the you know, that capacity for violence, the abuse and the trolling, right, uh, that's one aspect of digital authoritarianism. And then there is This other aspect, which is to do with you know how the state is collecting data in the name of providing services, if you could shed some links on that light and uh, shed some light on those links, you already mentioned it right at the end in the example you gave of the car park, but if you could talk a little more about that, that would I would be grateful for your thoughts.
1: Okay, so I think um, WhatsApp is uh, so Rohit. I would also like to say that. It's not as if these tools are not useful or important to our lives. Right. Life. Right. Yeah. Very. That point and, is very well and, taken. And yeah. No. no the, the the reason I want to mention this is that why why disinformation why social media has has almost become as some kind of a bog-like creature which, <laughs> which which attached to everything in terms of our function is it's that good it's that sticky in the sense right so in india for instance i know a lot of people who conduct all of their business uh, through WhatsApp, who have entire customer lists and sometimes happen to be uh, people who are in the unorganized uh, sector. They don't have the wherewithal to set up a website, et cetera, to transact payments. So a lot of the digitization, which has happened, has happened and has actually brought a degree of of, uh, uh, social mobility for people at the same point in time. And which is why I think it kind of dulls our senses I I mean in a a, a sense beyond the communities in academia on activism or people who understand or build these technologies in terms of unquestioning uncritical um, uh, embrace of them in a sense that uh, they view the smartphone as something which is really really good but don't understand that what's also happening is that the WhatsApp group in which they're able to know that when water will come because it doesn't come all the time even in cities like Delhi and you're up complex society tells you that the water will be available for these hours on these days or the electricity will um, uh, be cut off for for, for some maintenance work etc is also a place where a certain form of majoritarian values are being broadcast for instance if there's and a local election but uh, for uh, local i i for i a local-
0: Yeah, sorry. I just wanted to say that, I just want to like jump in. I really sorry. Apologize for interrupting. But What you said at the beginning is absolutely true that, and you know, as far as I'm concerned, we shouldn't judge them for not having that critical sense, right? Because you and I, we
1: do this for a living. This is our vocation. Yes. Yes. No, no. uh, uh, So the thing is that uh, a lot of my work actually is towards Ensuring that, like, you know, like, uh, you're essentially a provider to society, which itself that there's an unfair expectation for them because the larger architecture is such that it's easier for them to actually communicate in a way where the current is, uh, current is flowing, right? In right, a right. sense, right. Can't break that because sometimes the architectures itself are as such. So I also don't uh, judge people in that sense. But uh, I do say that, and uh, it 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 is correct to say that quite often the assimilation of technology, which is done uh, in a much more populist sense, is done. Without a sense of critical reason, and that's because there is this uh, stated expectation and trust which is there quite often. As much as people say we don't trust technology, I think they do. Um, so uh, in the in the in the daily habits. So uh, uh, just Rohit, just coming back to WhatsApp, I would say that what what WhatsApp does is that it makes communication so easy um, by itself that it has led to um, uh, it has led to a different kind of political campaigning where the BJP, of course. Uh, due to the amount of money it gets through electoral bonds, which is our form of corporate funding, um, uh, which is again uh, led to a wide distortion in free and fair elections and the democratic polity in India. So the BJP, of course, is in front, but even parties such as um, the Aam Party or the Congress Party or the Trinamul Congress, when you look at how they do their digital campaigns, it's primarily digital, and they do not care about privacy. They just want to. Uh, get to know who's the person, where do they live, what are their interests, and how can I make them vote for me? Because the political party today in India is essentially not a vehicle for social service. It is a vehicle towards gaining power and maintaining it and growing it by itself. And if you look at the campaign website, for instance, and I'm disappointed to bring this up because I may expect better from the Indian opposition of the Bharat Jodo Yatra, it doesn't have a privacy policy. If you looked at the uh, uh, campaign website of the TMC for its Goa elections, where it offered the young people there uh, some kind of guaranteed employment and startup loans, it didn't have a privacy policy, in fact. So when you think about uh, the larger use of personal data in uh, political campaigning, uh, it's a it's a, it's a very lucrative uh, business. It's a very technical business. It's a very developed business. And it's a far cry from when I think so the Obama campaign first did A-B testing for emails and changed the colors on the ads, which was at that point in time thought to be some great giant breakthrough in individual donor giving, uh, which would break the shackles of corporate power. But here we are.
0: Here we are. Well, the cunning of late capitalism or whatever you you, you, you might want to, um, you know, you might want to call it. Uh, yeah, uh, you know, uh, uh, it's, it's in the Indian context, particularly, I will add that, yeah, of course, we live in a moment where globally, you know, STEM is fetishized. Uh, but and, you know, we we see technology as this force that's re-enchanted the world. Uh, but in the Indian context, you know, there are, I always maintain there are two words that, Indian classes, I think across, you know, Indian groups across the class, sort of uh, spectrum, if you will, uh, we 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 suspend like all critical kind of judgment. One is we hear the word technology and our, you know, we just kind of mesmerized, hypnotized, and the other is development and the fetishization of technology and development and rich irony here, given that the BJP is weaponized it so powerfully, actually, you know, in part is Nehru's legacy, right? The idea yes. of the scientific temper and and so on, yes. and his obsession with centralized planning and development, right? And I, I would see this, you know, at, at the, there's many years ago, I'd organized a talk, there was a journalist who was looking at practices in places like Chhattisgarh around mining. And, you know, she spoke at a community event, she, was, she did something at Santa Clara, but she mentioned that she was at a community event. And she was talking about the violence that, for instance, indigenous communities, you know, they're disenfranchisement, loss of land, and so on. Uh, and, and she said, the question that kept coming, yes, this is happening, but it's needed, because we have to develop, it's for development, it's for development, right? You keep going on, same thing with technology, we will progress and so on. Let me, you know, I know we are running a little short of time, and we will have to have not one, but several conversations, and we will. Uh, but, you know, we know now that that earlier, that moment of hope, that expectation, the internet would lead to this new world, didn't pan out. We know, for instance, you know, I think of Thomas Fre- Friedman's incredibly naive ideas about how Facebook caused the Arab Spring to happen. I mean, they're really embarrassing, honestly. That didn't
1: pan out, but you know, very these- embarrassing. It's very embarrassing. It was taken respectably even at that time. Oh yeah,
0: you I mean, it's not linked
1: so like, shortages, whatnot. So yeah. yeah,
0: you know that it was uh, the the you know the Twitter revolution, this that, and, you know. I mean, I, I. I can never quite, having lived here in the valley for now 20, 15, close to 15 years, uh, I can never quite tell whether these guys were obviously very, very smart at what they do in the realm of technology, maybe the realm of finance, picking the next unicorn, whatever, but seem incredibly naive in the understanding of society. I can never tell, are they that naive or are they like very cynical? So that's, but that's a topic for another discussion. Still, they're, you know, they're, the internet still carries genuine, like, you know, radical capacity it holds
1: right. hey. it holds so, it holds tremendous promise rohit i think it holds tremendous promise i i really believe that if something can make our society better it will be technology i i, I but i think we need a much more social conception of technology a much more humanist com- conception of technology so this and,
0: is exactly uh, the question i was going to ask you how do we get there I know it's it's, I a, we... it's a very
1: easy question to answer <laughs> but how do we get no. there? what are your thoughts about so, that so so the thing is that it'll always be broken it'll be broken because it's a product of human uh, intuition uh, ingenuity bias by itself and Pretty, uh... Yeah. yeah, 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 all, all of that. So it will reflect in an in Indian context, our uh, class biases, our economic biases, our social biases, our unique national history, our own childhood, and uh, the kind of parenting which is there in India. And it will be very different in, in the United States. And uh, sometimes it will come from that pure uh, conception that technology is my path to a better life to the exclusion of the other right it's a it's 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 a yearning for status by itself I think what needs to happen in technology and this is still not happened is that technology needs to be at the center of aspirational politics and it needs to be actually made not into the, uh, uh, a vehicle for attainment of a specific goal by itself it needs to be also a a, a a developed governance framework, and I think Europe is attempting that, Some uh, even, the, even Britain for, for all, all its fault is attempting that, in which it thinks about digitization and then fits it within its national values, which emerge either from the constitutional frameworks or charter documents. And Europe is doing that. Europe is saying that how do we visualize technology within European values? What do we allow? What do we not allow? And when we do allow something, what are the compromises we make? So I think it needs that conversation. Where the conversation is right now is at research centers, which academics, and sometimes that conversation by itself is has a tremendous disconnect between the social sciences and the STEM fields, where the STEM fields feel that we are contributing to the innovation while the others are just engaging in idle chatter by itself. And the people who are uh, understanding society much better, who have studied society, uh, who uh, various multidisciplinary approaches are also thinking at the same point in time uh, that uh, that we do not have a say into how technology is being built. I think those large social conversations right now are starting from a point of a loss of hope, a loss of trust, um, in a sense that you hear these words, uh, dystopia uh, uh, again and again. And what's important for people to understand is that hard work needs to be done because it's that important, right? You just can't Talk about technology in a sense of buoyancy of either leading to tremendous amounts of economic development, but you have to think about it much more foundationally, what it does for individuals beyond just giving them the ability to earn more and get a decent wage. And I think the democratic promise has always been that, it's not only about a person being able to first make ends meet. It's been about how a person can live in a society and care for the other person as much as the other person may be very different from them. And that's the basis of a democratic society. So I think that kind of thinking we will need to step towards. And I think it'll be a very, very tough and long road. We've not been able to do that with with, with, with wealth inequality, with monetary finance till now, which you've understood does this. Okay, it causes these kinds of social impacts. But I think that aspiration will build up over a period of time. I think a loss of hope, despair, lack of trust will, will be shaken off by large sections of society sooner or later. And they'll understand the power and also the promise of digital technologies. And that's what our work is towards. We I, Let me tell you Rohit. Uh, so when I started working at IF about five and a half years ago, people thought that, what is this? Why is this? And does it even matter? And this was this was more often than not in the non-profit sector, where people in India very validly say, and even now, in fact, it's increased, is that you don't have um, proper sanitation facilities. Um, uh, there's Email, Twitter those are the much more relevant issues. Apart, if you want to work in um, uh, in in the non-profit sector for social service, while you're focusing on digital technologies, and I say because it impacts all of you. And I got to understand that when young environmentalists who were campaigning against the environmental impact assessment law in India, which would be diluted and thereby large tracts of land could be sold to corporates even without environmental impact assessment, their website was blocked for petitioning the Ministry of Environment and forests. So I would say that uh, Rohit, uh, over a period of time, this kind of realization will seep into communities, and uh, it it'll be to our benefit. It's not a democratic. It's it's an incidental democratic conversation. It's not at the center of it right now.
0: Well, this is fascinating. Very quickly, it just reminds me. I know we are. You know, you have to leave, and I don't. It's a working day for you. And again, thank you so much for making this this time. But I remember seeing an ad. Uh, on 101, one of the freeways I take to go to work, the Mozilla Foundation, it said, air, water, uh, what was it? Air, water, freedom and internet, something like that, you know, and, and it it's it's a valid point. And it's not something that, you know, is 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 sort of secondary, it's in a, in a way fundamental. And that's not to make a kind of, uh, you know, not to sort of, again, romanticize technology. But the point is that all these other values are impacted by it. But what you say is really fascinating, because what you're saying, understand it is that we have to see technology in a sense as a human right as a civil right right once it's once we see it like that then you can't look at it in terms of purely cost benefit value because we know that yes yes don't see the value of human life in terms of we don't see it in terms of you know how, how productive or efficient is this person at least in, in 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 the ideal right in theory all human rights are indivisible inviolable they're possessed by all humans mm-hmm. And the impact of technology needs to be seen by that. Well, I think that's a lovely, positive, optimistic note to end on. And it's not uh,
1: optimistic, Rohit. Let me say it's not optimistic. I'm just well, indicating hard work ahead.
0: Well, I, you know, my favorite quote from Gramsci, right? That uh, uh, pessimism of the intellect, optimism of the will. Right. I mean, what else do we have as a choice? <laughs> but you know, to me, it is optimistic because hard and you know, long as the road is, you're there doing the work, and that's remarkable. So I want to end on that gesture of appreciation. I want to also mention that, you know, Apar reached out to me six years ago when I was in Delhi for the Sci-Fi Conference, which is organized by the Gervais Foundation. I was very touched because I was there for a couple of days and he made the time at the end of his working day, at the end of his long jog, from Lothi Gardens, which also shamed me in terms of <laughs> just your dedication, so I actually it shamed me enough that I exercised the next morning and went for a swim in the hotel. <laughs> and, he, and he gave me a wonderful book by a legal scholar, and we've you know been in touch, not as much as I would have liked, uh, but hopefully we can <clears throat> have another conversation like this and that you know in person uh, and virtually as well. So, apart uh, with that, I'll sign off. Uh, thank you very much, and thanks to all our listeners. Uh, we will do these a little more frequently than I'd hoped, but we've started... Can
1: can can, can I can I make one personal appeal? Please, it's please. It's the, uh, like, you know, it may be the start of the year when you get this out or whenever, but um, I think it may be a good time for people if they are Indians to donate to the IFF because we rely on Indian donations and individual Indian donations so we can do our work in a... Um, in an independent way so so i do encourage to people to, to go to internetfreedom.in/donate and uh, donate to us and um, that's that's one way how you can support this work quite often when you feel that um, you uh, you feel that um, uh, there's a, uh, there's a lot of censorship the internet shutdowns uh, we do it very effectively you can go and check us out and all of our funding all of our uh, governance uh, frameworks all of that is very transparent we are a public uh, institution in that sense
0: yes please
1: do that absolutely do
0: that and i think on that note apar thank you again thank you. and we'll we'll be back for another chat take care
1: thank you